Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is what's next for the freight market with my friend Chris Pickett. Guys, if you don't already follow Chris Pickett on LinkedIn, or if you're not already connected to Chris Pickett on LinkedIn, please follow this guy because he's been very, very successful in our business, worked for a lot of top companies, done some great things. Today, he is the COO of Flock Freight. And by the way, if you're an LTL shipper or an over-the-road shipper who's interested in sustainability, you need to check out what we're talking about today because we will touch on what Chris does in his day job over at Flock Freight. They're doing some wonderful things there. Second, in all his spare time, Chris is the founder of Picket Research, which publishes the Picket Line, which is a monthly publication read by a lot of the top brass in our industry, people who want to make sure they don't make mistakes. And it's about the current and expected future market conditions for spot and contract truckload line haul rates. So, we all know rates are down right now. Um, I talked to Chris probably, I don't know, a year ago. We talked a lot before the rates were down. And I, my sense is you need to follow Chris because you don't want to go bankrupt. We've seen companies go bankrupt. There are some real problems when the rates go down like they are right now. So anyway, check out my interview with Chris Pickett. You won't be sorry. But before we get to the podcast, I want to tell you about my friends at Tusk Logistics. That's T-U-S-K logistics.com. If you're a small parcel shipper, you can save 40% with Tusk. And the way you can save 40% is Tusk has a great technology and they've connected a whole bunch of regional small parcel carriers. These are carriers that have been in business for a long time and they're excellent service, better than the big guys in their region. But you could never use them because they were just regional. Tusk has connected these guys into a national network. You can save 40% and have better service. And in addition, you get Tusk's technology, which is top-notch, plus you get Tusk, uh, their customer support. Overall, you can't lose. You get better service than you're going to get from the big guys, and you get better technology from the big guys, and the, and the service, um, the delivery time is better than the big guys. 40% savings. Do it. TuskLogistics.com. And right at the top, it says, get started. Click on that button and get started and save 40%. So how's it going, Chris? Yeah, it's going great, Joe. Thanks for having me on again. I'm excited to have you on again. So I had Chris on, I, we were trying to figure it out maybe two years ago, and we were talking about being at the very top, at the peak of the freight market. And Chris, by the way, is an expert in all this stuff. So we'll get to that in a sec. But first, and by the way, we're no longer at the top of the freight market. Maybe you guys noticed that. <laughs> Chris, please introduce yourself and your companies and where you're calling from today. Yeah, you bet. Uh, Chris Pickett, Chief Operating Officer at Flock Freight. So Flock is building a technology platform that really helps shippers uh, move anything that doesn't require a full truck to move, just just better. And we'll dig into the details around how we do that and why we do that and, uh, and why it's important. And then also, you know, publish a monthly newsletter on freight markets. It's become some of a obsessive passion of mine right over the years uh, and really looking to do nothing more exotic than predicting the direction of, of where the market goes next, right? So very apt, you know, background and kind of context leading up to the topic of this podcast. Fundamentally, based on everything that we look at, that I look at, historical patterns, you know, what do they teach us and, and where do they kind of indicate as to what we should expect over the, the months and quarters ahead? Yep. So that is Picket Research, correct? That is Picket Research. And so you, again, two years ago, I'm thinking it was two years ago, I, I, I will put the original a link to the original podcast in the show notes. So if anyone wants to listen to what we said two years ago, maybe it's 18 months ago. Yeah. It was almost exactly two years ago. So everything we said two months ago, it'll be, it'll be the opposite. Yeah. So I think the, the, timing, the timing was interesting, right? I spent yeah, 13 to 14 years prior to Flock uh, at Coyote Logistics. And you know, a lot of, of work we did there was predicated on just understanding the direction of, of spot versus contract rates such that we could make you know better contract promises to shippers, just do a much better job of of managing right that that truckload freight mix you know through the cycle. Paul leaving Coyote, you know, was going to spend some time you know, out in the woods wandering, kind of figure out what the next adventure was going to be. You know, stood up picket research to kind of continue scratching that that market itch, and then ended up you know three months later, you know, roughly uh, you know joining the flock team. 
Yep. So you started to touch on this background, but you were not just any, you didn't, you weren't one of the last people at, uh, at Coyote. You were one of the first people at Coyote. So Brown, tell us a little bit about where you grew up, where you went to school, some career highlights before you started at Flock and also before you started uh, Pickett Research. Yeah. So um, grew up outside of Washington, D.C., a town called Falls Church, Virginia, you're Northern Virginia. I studied industrial engineering at Virginia Tech. Nice. Coming out of Virginia Tech in 98. Yeah. Go Lady Hokies, Final Four. Yeah. I was just going to say history. that. <laughs> so graduated in 98 and I kind of yeah, had some internships and co-ops along the way, mostly in manufacturing kind of environments and distribution centers and came away not too crazy about what was happening necessarily inside the four walls of the plant, but you know, super fascinated by what happened You know, once that product came off the line rolled on a truck and found its way to some market you know, up the street uh, at Washington, D.C. or you know, across the ocean to you know, Tokyo, Japan. So this idea of you know, global logistics seemed you know, super interesting, but I wasn't sure what to do with that. So coming out of school, I ended up taking a consulting job, right? Because what else do you do if you're not sure what you want to do with your life? You become a consultant. So I became a, a technology consultant for Accenture, which was then still Anderson Consulting. Nice. They, they were like the first big consulting or tech consulting company. Yeah, yeah, and they're, they're still they're still doing quite well. So for no other reason than the West Coast sounded cool, ended up landing in their San Francisco office. I had two buddies who got software jobs at PeopleSoft at the time, so we kind of threw our crappy college furniture in the back of a U-Haul and kind of headed west from Virginia to you know seek our proverbial fortune. And so you know soon found that landing in in the San Francisco Bay Area in 1998 with an engineering degree, working for a technology consulting firm. It wasn't a bad place to find yourself. You're given the first wave of of mania around e-commerce and uh, and the internet overall. So I spent about a year and a half, two years at at Anderson Consulting. Became a database developer, so SQL code maintaining Oracle and DB2 databases, mostly in the service of building payment software and billing software for for telecom. So it's kind of the opposite of of sexy e-commerce. But after about two years of that, ended up uh, joining a startup team. Uh, went out and raised about eighty six million dollars to build an e-fulfillment direct-to-consumer platform uh, in support of what was happening with the democratization of retail. Turns out we were just you know twenty odd years too early. Uh, but we were somewhat successful, and then you know when the B two C market you know blew up, you know so did our target market. So we folded, ended up getting acquired by a kind of a sister portfolio company. But at that point, kind of caught the startup bug. You know, I think the idea you could find like minded entrepreneurs, you know find some interesting tech and go disrupt an industry. I had no idea that was even a career option, you know, coming out of it tech. Probably wasn't at one time. <laughs> yeah, but it's kind of you know, once I kind of caught that bug, thought, holy cow, this was super fun. How do I put myself back in this position? But in you know 2001, you know, no one was writing you know 86 million dollar checks to to Chris Pickett at, at all of 24 years old. Uh, so decided to go back to grad school. You know, try to get smarter. You know, run into some of those like minded entrepreneurs. Did a master's of engineering degree at uh, at MIT, and then after that, an MBA at Georgia Tech. Pretty good schools you went to. All these are great schools. I, mean, I was trying to hit all the East Coast tech schools. You know, all the, the VT, MIT, GT. Can't do any better than those three. But at MIT, ended up in a, a cohort with some folks that would shape the trajectory of my my career at least. You know, from then on, a guy named Jeff Silver, and then also a guy named Bill Driegert. So Jeff was. One of the early guys at, at American Backhaulers, you know, super successful in the space, a virtual legend. After selling American Backhaulers to C.H. Robinson in 99, Jeff decided, uh, I guess he got bored, decided to go back to grad school, first at MIT, and then he went on, I think, to get an executive degree at, uh, at, at the University of Michigan. Go Blue. In any case, met Jeff, met Jeff, met Bill. We kept in touch. About a year after I finished at Georgia Tech, you know, Jeff was you know, working on uh, what became Kyrie Logistics you know, with Bill, had also uh, joined early. And then once I got a sense of just the scale of what we thought we could build at Coyote, I moved to Chicago from Atlanta in November of, of 06 uh, to join them. Good time. That's a good time of year to move from Atlanta to Chicago in November. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, someone hasn't spent much time in the Midwest. You made that decision. But in any case, you joined that early Coyote team in, in 06 and, uh, and it was a rocket ship of a ride. I mean, I spent most of my time on the kind of customer facing revenue well, side. How early were you there? Like how many employees did, did Coyote have? When you- I was probably a dozen or so. And then when they became, they got bought by? By UPS. So we scaled the business over nine years. After nine years, got to about $2 billion. And there were a couple of acquisitions along the way. Um, sold to UPS uh, for $1.8 billion. I stayed, this is 2015. Um, I stayed for a few more years. You know, it took us nine years to get to the 2 billion, took us three years to double that and get to four. Wow. Just a sense of just how large these markets are. And if you've got a, a better mouse track and, you know, when it's reinforcing feedback loops and the flywheel spinning, you know, businesses uh, can get, you know, quite large relatively quickly. I could add something in there. You know, I joke about it every once in a while. I say tech, the techies are like 12 and 0. 
they're like Alabama or Georgia and college football. Like the Patriots had that great run. But that wasn't abundantly clear in the early 2000s. We knew tech is coming, but it wasn't like every bright young person said, I have to get in the tech biz. Now, now sure. it seems like, well, of course, tech is the place to be, but it wasn't always that way. No. I think what's been interesting with the application of tech to, to transportation is it can't be just tech. This is still very much a, a people business, a people industry. Relationships absolutely matter. And I think that the models that are working are the ones that are most successful. You're using tech to, to amplify and empower right, the human beings right, that are still managing these relationships, applying creativity to, to disrupt process, improve process, and make the industry much more efficient. Yeah. Before we hit record, we were talking about this. I mentioned that I feel like there's a, a foundation that we're all sta- standing on, and it's small trucking companies, small warehousing companies, people who are doing all that work. I seldom talk to them because we're talking about tech and bigger ideas, but without those people doing that work, none of the tech will move move a pallet this morning. <laughs> you got that right. Not yet anyway. Not yet anyway. So where'd you go after Coyote? So a few years after the UPS acquisition had kind of you know proven everything that I, I wanted to prove at Coyote. Fantastic team, very well capitalized, you know, incredibly bright future ahead, you know, working hand in hand with with UPS, you know, figured 2020 would be a good time to kind of gracefully exit stage left, kind of pass the baton and you know let the next you know wave of, of leadership coming up, you know, take it from there. So left Coyote the end of 2020, I'm sorry, yeah, 2020, 2021, you had a few months of just kind of figure what the next step was going to be. Yeah, I had never had any intention of, of actually retiring, but there's too many interesting things happening in the space. So I took the opportunity to stand up picket research, really just as a way to kind of keep me honest and, and force me to keep trying to advance, you know, some of the theories around, you know, this recurring market cycle that I believe, you know, drives U.S. trucking rates, both contract and spot, pretty consistent, probably unexpectedly or under-acknowledged, you know, consistent basis, which we'll talk about. So every month I, you know, lock myself up in the attic and spend a few hours, you know, trying to interpret, you know, all of these oftentimes conflicting signals you know, were getting out of the freight market and, and try to make sense of those and, and map out a path as to, to what comes next. You figured I'd be doing that for a while. In the meantime, you know, got to know uh, really a bunch of founders and as I looked for kind of who were doing, you know, some of the more interesting things in the space and pretty early into that kind of process, Got to know Flock. So I got to know Orin Zaslansky, who I believe has been on the podcast before. He's been on twice. I've called I've called Orin uh, a force of nature. <laughs> it's uh, that's a very good term for Orin. You know, can I talk about I mean I'd never had the you know the fortune to to meet Steve Jobs. I spent some time out in the Bay Area and never, you know, kind of cross paths, but the idea of that kind of reality distortion field and just willing, you know, ideas and innovation to to come into fruition in a way that you wouldn't otherwise be willing to believe. Uh, and Orange absolutely got that superpower. Yeah, I just saw you two at Manifest, and uh, that was actually the first time I met either of you. I always felt like uh, if if I was living in Elon Musk's uh, simulation, it, you could easily trick me because I, I interview people, I meet people, I feel like I know them, but I never really met them until I was at Manifest a few months ago. So, And it's just the the... The core thesis behind what we're building at Flock, and again, I talked about your creating just a better way to ship things that don't require a full truck. And so, and again, we think of, of, of less than truck or anything less than a full truck is anything less than, you know, 26 pallets or anything that doesn't full, you know, cube out or way out a 53-foot drive-in. And so, you know, at its heart, we're taking, let's say you have two shippers and they both have half a truck of freight. And that half a truck is probably going to be too cost prohibitive to move through a, a volume LTL network. And so without Flock, the more likely they're going to tender those two half loads to a truckload broker or, or a truckload carrier. They're going to pay the full rate. They don't need the full truck. Once those carriers get that half load, there's not a lot of incentive to go out and find another load to put in the back of that truck, right? They are getting paid full truckload money. It's a light load. It's easy to move. Should be easy to cover. You know, what's the problem? You know, Flock will say, don't do that. You know, we'll give you a rate that say comes in around 75% of your full truckload rate. It's not half the rate, but it's 25% cheaper. So both of those shippers are ecstatic, right? They're both saving 25%. You know, now we've got effectively 150% of a truckload rate in the load. We can pay a motor carrier 125% of what they would normally make because there is an extra stop. There's probably gonna be some more time involved and then still yield an attractive margin to reinvest in the business. And so it's this arbitrage that we're unlocking where effectively we can save a shipper money, two shippers money in this case. We can pay a carrier more than they would otherwise make on a per mile per, per unit of time basis still yield an attractive margin, and it's a massive win for the environment. You know, shipping less than, you know, shipping a shared truckload versus traditional LTL or full truckload 
we estimate saves, you know, 20%, 20 to 40% of unnecessary carbon emissions. Right. And by the way, guys, I, I, this is one of the things that I learned from interviewing Oren, the founder of Flock, is we were talking about empty miles. And he said, well, what about half empty miles? And it, it hit me like, like a ton of bricks. Like, yeah, we all know a truck rolling down the street empty is a horrible thing for the driver, for the trucking company, for the environment. Everybody lose. And by the way, shippers lose when there's an empty truck because that guy's got to make money later on. He's got to charge more. So we, we all know that empty trucks are the enemy of our business. They're the villain. But what about the half empty truck? And, and you guys are nailing that because anytime there's a truck that can put extra pallets on, it's a flock problem. And I'll throw one other thing out there. During the pandemic, we learned that the LTL companies struggled uh, certain lanes. And by the way, I love LTL, nothing against it. But we have 10 players that make up 80% of the LTL market. They do 80% of the volume. And I think the top 25 players do 90 some percent of the market. Very consolidated industry. Yep. And there's only a few nationals. I think Old Dominion, FedEx, UPS or whatever they're called now. Not too many. But LTL is also a very small piece of the overall business. It's a fraction, I think a tenth of what trucking truckload is. So when we have problems with the LTL market, like we did during COVID, we needed solutions, but the solutions were like, well, I guess I can get a box truck to come get it. Or I guess I could get three vans to come pick up my pallets, or I can do what you guys are doing at Flock Freight. And I absolutely love it. And we could have never done this without really cool tech. Yeah. It's, you know, there's a reason why that LTL industry functions the way it does, because you know, to build out those traditional hub and spoke networks is incredibly capital intensive, which creates massive barriers to entry. And therefore, it's the consolidation that we see. I think I asked John Larkin that um, when he's on my podcast and one of the industry legend, and I asked, I think I asked him, why don't we, why doesn't somebody else come into the LTL market? And he said, small parcel is the similar. It's hard. Small parcel, the, the rail system. You know, and, and as a result, they're very, very inelastic. So when you get a big demand purge or a surge or a shock like we saw during COVID, just the networks just can't physically flex to support that. Yep. You know, as opposed to the truckload market, which is very much the opposite, very elastic, you know, very fragmented, very low barriers to entry and exit. Yeah. And by the way, I I have an advertiser and a good friend over at Tusk Logistics. They connected with technology a whole bunch of the small regional, small parcel players. So there's like Lone Star down in Texas. These companies, I used to always say, why doesn't somebody go buy up all these regional small parcel players? Well, it's expensive. It's capital intensive. And what Flock's done is basically say, we'll connect them all via technology. So in effect, it's almost like a consolidation. For sure. We talk about you know, the half empty miles. It's, you know, did if we see it and observe anecdotally, you know, 30% of truckload capacity on the road that is, is, is wasted. And you hear that number, you think all the challenges we had with poor congestion, you know, driver shortages, supply chain, you know, dislocations, it's just, it's, it's absurd. And so we have a hypothesis that if we can attack that waste now with the capacity we have on the road, I mean, that creates just as much environmental and efficiency advantage as, as alternative fuels and you know, new technologies will as that technology continues to mature. Yeah. I think guys, we're going to hear more and more about shared in the future. My, my mother's who was in her eighties and she lives in Dearborn, Michigan, home of automotive. She was saying, I don't see all, all of us buying electric cars for $75,000. And I was like, yeah, you're right, mom. I don't either. But I said, but what if it was autonomous? And you didn't need it. My mom goes, I need a car. Like your car leaves the driveway like <laughs> once a week, <laughs> twice a week, right? You could get a, a shared vehicle. We're going to see shared shared cars at some point because most of us don't drive our cars most as much as we think right. we do. But we need to do more shared truckload. And that's exactly what Flock is doing. Talk about, you guys are a B Corp. Talk about what that is and why that's uh, important to your customers. Yeah, so we're a B Corp, also a public benefits corporation, and 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 getting the, the B Corp certification, it's not just yeah you you have a pay fee, you fill out an application, and and you get to put the stamp on. It's literally written into the the corporate bylaws of the organization, right? Such that you know we're not going to if push comes to shove compromise the environmental mission for the, the benefit of, of of shareholders only. You know, fortunately, our business model the, those two don't conflict. Right. The environmental advantage you know comes directly out of the efficiency gains. 
that drives uh, the financial outcomes that are inherent to the model. And so, yeah, we take it very seriously. It is a very mission-driven organization. I believe we're the only B Corps that we know of, at least uh, in freight. And so that environmental mission is it's a huge part of, of kind of why we're here. And it helps us attract the best and the brightest, you know, from a, a technical competency, you know, software development engineers, you know, data science folks, uh, operators, you know, sellers that, you know, want to be part of, of a business that isn't just out there to, to try to extract profits or even to make a, a network run more efficiently, which we do both. It's, you know, to make the world a better place. And if we can legitimately through the, the way that we address freight marks and, and, and go to market, you know, can have at least, you know, some small, you know, yeah, impact and you know, do our part to, to you know, kick a dent in the universe and, and, and try to make the you know, sustainability conversation you know, much more you know, palatable over time. And that's why we're here. Yep. And by the way, if you want to become a B Corp, I think you have to go through like a process. It's, I think it's through B Labs in New York. which is a- B Labs, it's, it's, there's process, there's expense. Yeah. And it's not, as you, as you mentioned, Chris, it's not just we filled out the application and paid for it. And now we get to put a stamp on our trucks and our, our laptops. No, you have to go through a process and you have to keep, you have to keep recertifying if that's the right word. But I I thought it was interesting. Oren said when he was on my podcast that when he said, I want to become a B Corp, B Labs, like you can't, you're trucking, like you're the dirtiest you're industry. You're, 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 you're part of the problem. Like, yeah. right. And he said, no, 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 we are solving that problem. And, and by the way, that, I think that's a very short-sighted perspective because every time I hear somebody say, we need to do this with the environment. That is like, yeah, but you still want to drive your car and you want to live indoors and eat every day. So like we're all part of the problem and we can all be part of the solution. Yeah, so, we're all going to have to make some compromises. Right. Yep. But I would say also that more and more we're going to find shippers that say our customers and our management are telling us that we want more sustainable solutions. So this is right on point. So when when uh, I know you guys are already doing it, but for, the, for those other people saying, how are we supposed to do this? Well, Flock figured out a way. So there- Here's one way. And here's a way that's, that's not going to be cost prohibitive. I think one of the challenges now, I think a lot of shippers would, would like to, to dredge this and you know, transition to alternative fuels, whether it's hydrogen or, or whether it's you know, electric vehicles, but the technology has an advantage such that you know, you're not going to pay a, a much higher premium to, to leverage that capacity. I think it's a bit of, a, of an impasse between the service providers that are trying to invest in that tech and, and stand up that capacity and getting the shippers that are willing to pay for it, especially in this market. And so doing things like only paying for the space that you actually use and, and volunteering right to share and to, to leverage that, uh, that freight to, to drive more efficiency and just move it with a much more carbon friendly you know, mode of transportation and shared truckload than your other alternatives. You know, that by itself you know, can and, and actually will move the needle and, and, and absolutely counts towards those sustainability initiatives. So you guys are, are obvious. You guys are killing it. I know that. But who's the ideal customer for Flock Freight? I think those those shippers that can have you know ten to forty linear foot space. You know, you know freight. And so you know we talk about anything less than truckload. How many pallets is that? Anywhere from you you call it uh, you know four to four to twenty. You four to twenty pallet shipments. And I mean, there's no reason, you know, one, two, three pallet shipments don't pull, right? They absolutely do. There's no reason that, you know, 21, 22, 23 pallet shipments don't pull. They absolutely do. But relative to, to the density of, of our current network, you know, we find that the greatest success from, from a cost benefit standpoint with that, you know, 10 to, to 40 foot, you know, middle ground. So when you find like a, a, a shipper, are they using you guys for all their shipments, truckload and, you know, full truckloads and also shared? Sometimes. I mean, I think when we talk about kind of that ideal customer, it's the, the, the Value proposition for the LTL shipper, right? So then that under half a truck, you know, you're part of that equation is by bypassing the hub and spoke, you know, one, that freight just moves much more carbon friendly, right? For sure. We talked about that. It's also much faster depending on the length of haul, right? Because it's not hopscotching across a terminal network. It gets touched less. So therefore it gets broken less. It gets lost less, you know, fewer times, much less susceptible to claims. And so shippers that appreciate that, think high value consumer electronics where you don't want your freight in transit any longer than it has to be. Think furniture, think you know bulky things like HVAC systems that are just susceptible to damage. Every time you touch them, you know, the chance for something to go wrong, you know, can and often does. But also, a lot of those uh, shippers shipping into high OTIF, on time and full penalty locations where there's a high return on on reliability and, and trackability. So if we can give those shippers, even it's a four pallet, three pallet, six pallet shipment, you know, truckload level visibility and ELD tracking, that creates a lot of value. I love it. So, so, so that's the value prop for the LTL shipper. The value prop for the underutilized truckload shipper is you're just going to pay less and you're only going to pay for the portion of the truck you actually use. 
I was the uh, COO and general manager of a, a logistics company, and we did mostly less than truckload. And there are times where you're just really you you get your primary LTL companies that you're working with for that lane, and then when they when they fail, you don't have a ton of options sometimes. And again, there's not a it's not like the list of of providers is infinite. It's very small, and with certain regions, right. you just and during COVID, we had times where the LTL companies were saying, don't call us for this lane. We're, we're so backed up. And I'm not criticizing, but I guess my point is we need options. We need options. <laughs> and again, we don't, yeah, LTL is, is not going away You're, by, by any means. Orange City wanted to end LTL. Well, I don't think that's going to happen. You're being kinder. <laughs> Someday, maybe. I think there's absolutely a place in, in the modern supply chain for, for LTL networks. I don't see them going away. They'll, they'll have to improve because of what you guys are doing, though. And there are a lot of great, you know, truckload carriers out there. And, you know, while Flock is on our way, we're still, you know, relatively small compared to a lot of other scaled competitors that have access to more capacity. And so I think what we, we're trying to do is to create that third option, where we think that based on the characteristics of that shipment, a shipper should be able to choose LTL, full truckload, or now, you know, shared truckload. And if we can create a reliable shared truckload option, we think that will change you know, the velocity of everything. You know, whereas a shipper may have a half a load, they're going to wait to get that other half, right? To get the unit economics of a full truckload. You know, we're saying, you know, why wait? You know, ship and release. And if you can ship product as it's ready, you have less idle stuff sitting around. Uh, you're creating waste, creating temporal waste, creating, you know, spatial waste, you waste the inventory carrier cost. If you can release and ship, release and ship, we think that can have profound implications on really the rate of, of global commerce overall. Right. And there's increasingly there's companies who say, my boss is telling us to clean up the supply chain, clean up my supply chain. And by the way, 80% of greenhouse gases come from supply chains. So we all go home and we recycle and we don't use straws. And we do all these things, but that, that impact is minimal compared to supply chains. And so what you guys are doing is you're giving supply chain practitioners an option where you can actually improve your environmental f- footprint. Absolutely. It. So let's switch gears Take off your flock hat and put on your picket research hat. And what's next for the freight market? <laughs> and why don't you tell us a little bit about that sure. boom bust cycle that you told me about a few years ago? So I've been I've been tracking this for the last fifteen or so years, and and I guess this really started becoming again more apparent, you know, in our work at Coyote, where you know, oftentimes if you spend any measurable time in this industry, you know, people will describe it as as a cycle, and they certainly describe that as such in my early years. And, you know, sometimes the shippers have the power and rates go down and sometimes the carriers have the power and rates go up and it just oscillates back and forth. And it's just a, a function of, of how these trading partners operate. And while I could appreciate that, no one could ever tell me, well, okay, if that's the case, where are we in the cycle? You kind of, it, it was a surprise each time where everything was smooth sailing. Then suddenly it became a shipper's market or carriage market and then kind of rinse and repeat. And, you know, what we would observe is that every three years or so, right, that cycle would shift. And by looking at an awful lot of data, you know, our internal data, a bunch of external data sources, you know, ended up kind of putting together this framework that, you know, created this historical pattern. It became quite apparent. Really, every three years, it would seem the U.S. truckload market moves through this period of overshoot and then collapse. And it's, you know, we'll have typically it's, you know, two years up and then a year and a half down. And so during periods of time where rates, spot rates increase, the only thing that makes spot rates go up was supply scarcity relative to demand, right? There's more demand than there is capacity to meet that demand. So spot rates go up. And as spot rates go up, if you're on the supply side, but the motor carrier side becomes a much more attractive place to do business. And as human beings, we're all subject to something called recency bias. We always believe it's going to be like this forever. It's very hard to, to really visualize a world that looks that different than the one we're living in right now. And how it manifests itself here is when rates go up, good times are here. They're always going to be here. You know, let's go buy more trucks, either add net new capacity or more as often the case, let's replenish the, the trucks that we have because op income is increasing because rates are higher. We have an opportunity to reinvest in the fleet because there's not much else to reinvest in if you're an asset-based motor carrier. So even if you're not growing capacity, you're replacing your trucks and those old trucks go out to the secondary market. And that's where the opportunity for that long tail of carriers has to come in. So talk about how large the trucking industry is, you know, 875 billion-ish, incredibly fragmented. You have the 1 million plus FMCSA registered motor carriers, 
So like 92%, whatever the, the stat is, you operate fewer than 10 power units. So just resist consolidation. So it's the land of the long tail distribution. So when rates are high, long tail capacity comes in. And we saw that in spades in 2020 and 2021. If you look at the rate of uh, operating authorities, new ones granted by the FNCSA, spiked to historical proportions. Everybody wanted to, to get into the trucking market. And as is often the case, you know, we as human beings overdo it. Too much capacity comes in relative demand. It puts a cap on rates, a spike, an inflationary inflection point. And that's where we were two years ago when we, when we last talked. We're at the top of the market, inspecting a turn. And then once it turns, it typically takes anywhere from you know three to five quarters to hit a bottom. And that bottom is exactly where we're at right now. So in 2020, 2021, too much capacity came in. We overshot and now we're collapsing. And so right now the market's effectively seeking a point where enough of that overcosted capacity right, that came in over the last two years, unfortunately can't make enough money to stay in the game, to stay in business. And they'll have no choice but to exit either temporarily or permanently. And that may happen through acquisitions, which you saw recently with US Express and Knight Swift, right. medium to larger carriage going out of business. You're starting to see a couple of those, you know, 100 truck plus fleets shutting down. I've seen a few of those lately. I just saw two posted on LinkedIn. Somebody was uh, had started a discussion about that. And so the market's seeking a reckoning. Yeah, let me ask you, I love what you just said there, but a lot to unpack, I'll say. So we were talking earlier about Flock and LTL markets. And so the top 10 LTL carriers have 80% of the volume. The top 25 have 90% of the volume. Now you flip over to the truckload market, the top player has what percent the, of the, the top 10? Yeah, right. Exactly. The top 10 maybe have like, 12. Yeah, like a 1%. Yeah. So it's very different. So, and and then you said there's also, those are all huge companies. We say the JB Hunts. And if you had a guy down the street from you who said, I own a hundred trucks, you'd be like, that dude's killing it. But there's millions of those you said, right? Sure. And what I described is that crazy volatility and in terms of just how these cycles look and there's some visuals out on, on picketresearch.com and they definitely published some of this uh, through Flock on, on a periodic basis, but just the, the, the volatility is insane. You know, where, you know, during the, the COVID peak, you know, Q2 2021, spot rates were 56% higher on a year-to-year basis, spot line haul. You know, right now we're down at, you know, minus 31%. So it's you know an eighty five percentage point swing from from right. peak to trough. It's you know, breathtaking. That's the spot market, and that happens because of just that fragmentation and that decision making process that just drives that overshoot and collapse. Lemmings kind of you know off the cliff, but that's the spot market, and not everyone's fully exposed to the spot market, especially those large carriers that were mentioned. Right? Those are very sophisticated operators, very large fleets. A lot of that capacity will run in the contract market, or even better in the dedicated market. Right, where, where shippers are taking the utilization risk. And so in terms of who does well or who doesn't through these cycles, you know, it's a function of how much of their fleet or from the demand side, how much of your freight, you know, tends to run at a contract versus a spot rate. And there's an awful lot that sophisticated carriers and sophisticated buyers can do to insulate themselves, you know, from this volatility in many cases, thrive on it. Yeah. And so just for those who are not day-to-day in trucking we talk about spot rate, that means kind of the transactional business that today I wake up and I'm unemployed, but I'm, I go on a load board and I, or I, and I find a load. And when times are good, I'm killing it on that load. I'm getting way more than, I'm getting more than the contract guys, contracted carriers. The contracted carriers will say, hey, look, I made a deal with a shipper or a broker that they're going to use my, that they're going to use us for this price for the next year or even longer. And then dedicated is they're going to take over your asset. In effect, you get paid by them, but it's, you've got, you've got a sure thing there. Yeah. You're going to pay a fixed daily or weekly or monthly rate, regardless of. And we need all, we, we need all that. I used to always say like when I came from automotive and the idea, when I came out, I was like, I hate, I hate the idea of anything transactional just because you don't have the relationship you want with that person. But we need it in this place because uh, somebody who might be shipping contract and said, I do a hundred loads a week. Well, all of a sudden it popped up to 110 and my contracted carrier says, I can't do anything for you. So I got to go to the spot market and find some other help. You mentioned something also I, that I think is interesting that we have these, this boom cycle. And as it's booming, I, let's say you and I own 10 trucks and we we get together and we say, you know what? 
Chris, we got a lot of opportunities. Let's go out and buy two more trucks. And of course, my partner's Chris Pickett, so I'm I'm lucky. And he says, Joe, we're at the top of the market. We do not want to buy those at the top of the market, even right. though we have opportunities right now. Now, are there players who say we will wait until the bus cycle, the collapse, and then say we're going to go buy all the trucks then? I'm sure there are. And again, the, again, the successful large asset-based trucking companies, you know, this isn't their first road there. They've been in these markets for quite some time and, and have done quite well. So they get pick at research. So they're like, we are in the boom cycle. But, but I think what drives this, that bull up is, is the smaller carrier. And, and what I think is maybe somewhat underappreciated, it's I believe that the increasing you know, digital transformation of the industry is driving even more volatility, You know, higher highs and, uh, and deeper lows. And I say that because fundamentally, I believe it's taking down the barriers to entry it's access. So the barriers to entry have always been low, right? You can always, you know, go get your CDL, an operating authority, a surety bond, uh, and, you know, jump into the market, but you still had to either develop relationships with, with brokers. You're still small. So you're somewhat dependent on the spot market, or maybe, maybe you're on, you know, the DAT or, or your truck stop. And it took time to kind of figure things out. You know, now you can get in the market and there are, you know, a dozen different apps you can open up and have access to really tens of thousands of shipments, you know, very, very quickly. Yeah. And why that you can't argue against that I mean, you level the playing field. It's absolutely great for, you know, that smaller carrier, right? You live the American dream. It almost, I think it creates this false sense of, you know, prosperity sometimes where here's the big pot of gold, get in the market. It's easy. Here's all this freight, you know, carrier guns in, they're probably buying, you know, leases, you know, signing for leases at the top of the market, you know, overcosted in a, in a number of ways. And all of a sudden the market shifts, the bottom drops out of the spot market. And that tends to be the first wave that, you know, is forced to exit. And, and the more digital transformation we have, which I don't see it stopping anytime soon, you know, nor should it, and it'll be a phenomenon that I think deserves a little more attention as, as we go through these. Yep. So you mentioned the long tail. And so there's, if I was to put all of the carrier sizes, uh, how many trucks they have, the first one would be the big carriers that we've all heard about, right? And they would have thousands of tens of thousands of trucks sometimes. And then the long tail is the guys who are way at the other end who own two or three trucks. So you said the long tail is what drives a lot of the volatility. That's the the flush of capacity coming into and out of the market. You don't see the big the big you know, the big mega carriers you know exiting or entering everything. Right. So so they're going out of business or saying, hey, I, a lot of them might own one truck and say, I was an owner operator, but I'm also I also have an online business, so I'm going to so or or work construction or yeah. So so they leave their job. I also, I talk to small carriers all the time on the phone and they say things like, well, I have a farm and I have this and we bought some trucks, right? And so it's not there. It's not like they're not like they're a hundred percent dependent. Some are, but not everybody. And they can be optimistic. Right. So they say when the markets, the markets went high, they were like, we're all in. But as soon as they got slow, they're like, eh, we're all. We'll, we'll, we'll yeah, so as long as you don't overextend while it's high and take on a bunch of fixed costs, right, that you're going to regret once the rates go south, then yeah, this could be a quite lucrative business. Now, let me ask this: Could I? What's the average truck age? Do you have any idea what that is? Average truck age. I mean, if I had to get, well, I, I should even guess. I mean, I think the new ones, you know, most large fleets are running, you know, three to, to five years. Well, I'm just, I'm just wondering, like in the boom cycle, do we end up having trucks that are? you know, as the average age of trucks go up. And the reason I say that is because- I guess, yeah, because the secondary markets clear out. And so there is no, right. no replacement. Right. And I think that got exasperated, right. so, you know, this time around because of the supply chain dislocations on the OEM side, whether it's semiconductors or other components that, you know, ran in, in kind of parallel with uh, with the COVID recession. Yeah. This is a little unrelated, but it reminds me, uh, my my friend, Doug Sartain, he's over at Redwood. We were doing some consulting. And I remember one time, we, there's this company and they said, we own all our own, is a scrap company. We own all our own trucks and they're all paid for. And Doug did the math and he goes, yeah, they're all paid for, but they're all like horrible on fuel efficiency and the maintenance on them is so high that you should, you should sell these right. and buy new ones. And they're like, they're paid for. And they kept saying they're paid. He's like, he kept showing me the math yeah. and showing them the math. And I was like, it, but it, I get it. It's paid for. It feels very low risk. And now you're asking me to take on payments. And- well, I mean, that, that's the battle. We're in a market like this. You know, what's going to dictate where the bottom is? It's going to be, you know, all in spot rates are, are fading and they're still fading sequentially lower. 
and it becomes a point where that operating income line gets squeezed for whatever segment of the supply base that gets squeezed first, where they've got you know, operating costs per mile, and that's fuel, that's the least cost that they have them, that's insurance, that's what they're paying the drivers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a point where that rate line's going to run into that cost line and then even below. And you know, there's a period of time where I'm sure some carriers can survive post that point, but but they're not too many. And so what the market now is trying to find that point, you know, and fuel's in some ways helping, in some ways hurting this, whereas as fuel continues to decline, you know, diesel rates are 20% lower, you know, in March than they were in, call it December, you know, November, that creates more space, more cushion on that op income line. And so while that's short term, you know, very positive, you know, development for, for the asset based side of the market, what that then is allowing the, the market to do is to take lower and lower spot rates. So now for that market, we'll say, okay, I'm not at the point of, of insolvency yet, so I can accept lower and lower rates. And until we hit the point where no one will accept lower and lower rates, the market can't find a bottom. And so in terms of where does the market go from here, the, the, the question we started the podcast with is, you know, I think that you know, the research team at Pickett Research thinks that you know, we've got maybe 5 to 10% more downside sequentially to go in line haul rates, but then we're back year-over-year inflationary by Q4. So in terms of are we at the bottom, yeah, plus or minus you know, a month or two, I think we are. Yep. So we are right now, we're in the last week of March. So the last week of the first quarter, how was this first quarter for trucking? Not great. And again, it's yeah, again, coming on me. We're comparing it to- uh, That's a surprise. <laughs> right, yeah, we're comparing it to a phenomenal, you know, phenomenal run. You know, 2020, you know, 2021, you know, 2022 has been right the other side of that, the reckoning, right? The market went deflationary Q2 of 2022. You know, volume held up reasonably well, but rates faded. And most of that was supply side effect. It's so depending on where you were in the market, you know, it could have been a great year, um, you know, could have been a, you know, a terrible year. And so as the market, as the economy has continued to deteriorate, and again, things aren't off a cliff, you know, part of what we try to do is predict industrial activity and what's going on with the broader economy and consumption and how does that pull in you know, freight demand. As industrial production continues to weaken and overall freight volumes cool off, and like I said, that freight volumes aren't off a cliff, they're basically flat you know, year over year, which is very different than you know, last year. They were you know, plus 15, 20, right, 30%. So flat year over year. So volume's slowing down. Rates are, are, are coming down. So if you're a carrier that's you know, exposed to the spot market, it was, it was a tough quarter. If you are a broker that's exposed to the spot market, it was a tough quarter. If you're a carrier broker that's got a material contract position, you actually probably did pretty good. Because right? again, there's a lag with contract rates. You know, a lot of what we've talked about is what happens in the spot market. Your contract rates, if you overlay that year-over-year chart with spots, the same shape, but much less volatile. And, and spot tends to, to lead contract. So there's a lag. So if you negotiated contract rates six months ago, three months ago, and you're buying that capacity in the spot market to fulfill that obligation, you've had a decent quarter. But as those contracts get reset, as, as is often the case, you know, the, the good times won't last. So you know, Q1 is pretty lousy. I'd expect Q2 to, to be pretty lousy. And then I expect uh, you know some of those green shoots, at least if you're on the supply side, you know, on the, the broker or the carrier side, uh, to start you know showing come Q3, Q4. And I think by you know this time, you know next year we're we're off to the races again to the high side. So what about so this was not a good quarter this first quarter of 2023. How about the second quarter starting April 1st? What what do you think is the be it better than this quarter or worse? I suspect it's going to be a little bit worse. I suspect it's going to be a little bit worse. I think volume is going to cool down. And again, I don't expect volume to fall off a cliff. And then how about third, qu- they, they, third quarter? We see-, we, see, we see those green shoots. So I think we've got a little bit of pain left to go here before we get that reckoning in the market uh, and we hit our bottom. And that's regardless of what the economy that's does? Regardless. Or- I think if we get a, a, a less than terrible you know, outcome in terms of- uh, Yeah, the worse the economy there. does, the worse we do. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, uh, Chris. I saw- I think the largest steamship line is either Maersk or GSC. And I just saw GSC. MSC? MSC. Yeah, you're right. I never, you never hear about them. I always hear about Maersk. And, and by the way, I saw someone somewhere online that says, how do you pronounce Maersk? And I don't know how that's, everyone does it different, but MSC, you're correct. I saw something that they are predicting the second half of the year is going to do well. And that I think that was related to them making some investments because they're, I'm sure they buy the picket research, <laughs> but they're looking at a global, the global at least economy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And they're trying to figure out when should we be making our investments? And again, they're, not, they're the largest steamship line. They're not going out of business, but 
they are trying to time their investments to when they need new assets. And it's tough. I mean, the, the ocean markets aren't that different except one, they're much more consolidated, but the build cycles are so much longer. And you've seen these episodic periods of, of overshoot and collapse in the past. They killed it during COVID, but theirs was time when so they made no more ships, And then those ships show up. It's not it's six months later, it might be you know, three years later. Now all of a sudden, and I think you're starting to see some of that you know, you'll come to bear now where more of that ocean bearing capacity comes in the market at exactly the wrong time, which you know, keeps rates down in the cellar for some period of time until enough of that capacity is burned off or your demand conditions improve. Well, it's it's very interesting because I heard somebody else say this the other day. Um, Kara Kara Brown from Lead Coverage said she's marketing in this space, and they she works with a lot of a lot of the companies here. Her company does, and she said on my podcast, you know, when times are good like they were for us during COVID, that sounds horrible to say, but let's face it, it was a good time for a lot of companies, not families necessarily. And she said, at that time, there's always extra work, always, you know, there's extra shipments that are falling to everybody. It's, it's, it's raining and everyone's getting wet. But she said, in a market like this, you are competing head to head. The only way I'm going to win business is if I can't take it from the next company over. And she said, that's kind of means. So when we're in these times, I mean, the expectations are still that we're all going to still do well, but it just means we have to compete differently. Means the tide's gone out. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, before we hit record, we were talking about it. And I love this. Warren Buffett said it. When the tide goes out, you find out who's not wearing a bathing suit. And it, and I think about that in regards to margin compression and technology. So the companies that are really good at tech, like Flock Freight, but they're not the only ones, their cost per transaction is lower than other players. And somebody says, well, that doesn't matter to us. We got fat margins. Well, as the margins in the industry get tighter, you find out it's just the same as the tide going out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, everyone's susceptible to these where, you know, during certain times, based on, on outlook, you know, certain investments make sense. And then, you know, the world changes, that outlook doesn't hold true. And you start to kind of, you know, second guess those investments and everyone's got to, in many cases, adapt pretty quickly. Yep. Excellent. Excellent. So let's wrap this bad boy up. Final thoughts on what's next for the freight market with my friend, Chris Pickett. Yeah, I would say whatever side of the market that you're on, the buy side or the sell side, you know, will, will dictate how you're feeling right now. And, and, and wherever you are, I guess the guidance is don't get comfortable, but also don't panic. You know, when we were at the top of the market, you know, don't get comfortable, don't overinvest. If you're on the buy side at that point, right, don't panic, right? You're routing guides in shambles, but this is not always going to be the case. And I think the same thing holds true on the downside where I, I think we're almost there. If you're on the buy side, you'll take this time to, to recalibrate and think about you know, how your uh, transportation strategy is going to hold up during the next up cycle, which is going to be here, I promise you, before you think. So don't get complacent. Don't blindly chase this perceived safety of, of asset only, right? Because those assets are not infinite, right? That they're not completely right elastic. And think about how you might leverage different modes, different procurement styles, different carrier operating models or broker operating miles, models when things do shift and, and, and take the steps now to prepare yourself. If you're on the supply side, same thing, you know, prepare yourself for, for a market where, you know, we should expect a, a much more advantageous rate scenario, but you may not get it until, you know, Q1, Q2, you know, 2024. So if you're at that kind of breaking point, it's that question of how long can I hold on? Again, like I said, we believe sunnier skies are ahead, but it may not be tomorrow. Yep. I think the advice is always kind of the same as this too shall pass. Too shall pass. Good times. When when, when it's really good, this this too shall pass. It. <laughs> when it's really bad, this too shall pass. This too <laughs> shall pass. <laughs> but uh, it is interesting because anytime you're in business, there's these moments where you're like, yes, yes, this is so great. This is so great. And then there's moments where you're like, ah, oh, damn it. And I, I saw an Olympic athlete talking about this and she had a bad practice and her coach was also an Olympian. And he said, when you're when you're trying to do something with your life, do something great. There's one third of the time you're going to feel horrible. One third of the time you're going to feel great. One th third of the time you're going to feel okay. <laughs> I thought yeah, th that's okay. That's about right. <laughs> anyway, but 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 I would add a share truckload never goes goes out of style, regardless of upcycle downside. Exactly. Well, it's uh, it's it's never not cool to make the most of the capacity that we have. Yep. So I want to I want to get here from here of how we reach out and talk to you guys over at Flock Freight. What's the best way to connect? 
Yeah. So, um, you know, flockfreight.com or uh, anything specific to anything we talked about in this podcast or anything at all, you can still contact me at chris at flockfreight.com or, or find me on LinkedIn. Anything specific to the cycle or the framework or, or our picket research, um, uh, picketresearch.com is where you go. We outline the methodology and kind of why I believe the things that we believe and kind of how we think about markets overall. Yep. And what I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, a link to Picket Research, a link to Flock Freight, and any other links you guys give me. But before you go, I like to interview smart, interesting people like you. Who else should I have on my podcast? And I feel like I've said this before, and it's it's still true. There's never been more, I think, innovation in this industry than I can remember, especially with regards to, to technology. I mean, yep. so many fascinating entrepreneurs, so much capital right, still being deployed. You know, in different ways to to fuel that innovation. A little more expensive. A little but more expensive it's out there, <laughs> but but there's still entrepreneurs out there doing you know pretty amazing things and and kind of hanging in there. And I think too that I think I haven't seen enough of you know, out of the press is you know, one company called Goodship and their founder a guy named Ryan Soskin. He'd spent some time. Ryan Soskin. Ryan Soskin. I he was connected a, him on LinkedIn. He was a coyote. He was a convoy, and he's uh, leading an early stage team uh, to help drive some innovation around transportation, kind of procurement and, and execution. And then a guy named Tony Singh. I love it. Behind a company called Channel 19 that's building care facing tech focused on the refrigerated side of the market. And you're really helping, especially small, small medium sized cares, really make the, the best use of you know, some of the digital transportation that's, or transformation that's occurring across the industry. So Ryan Scott's going to good ship and, and Tony Singh at Channel 19. I will reach out and talk to those guys. I love it. I, 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 I totally agree. I think I say this all the time to younger people who are in this space is, they wouldn't have been in this space 10 years ago, 20 years ago, because the technology wasn't here. It was forever. The technology was in the four walls of the factory or the office. And people often say, why didn't we get tech? Why are we so late adopters? Well, it's so much harder to connect a network of trucks or ships or you know, the highways themselves. Sure. And when you think about it, we're kind of the outdoor factory, right? We still want to have efficiency. We still want to be effective. Uh, we still want to have processes that work, but it's a lot harder because we stretched our factory out over thousands of miles. These are, uh, these are fascinating times for sure. Yep. Thank, thank you so much, Chris. It's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And Likewise. Happy to come back anytime. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You have been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage with leaders in the logistics and supply chain community. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, hit the like button, and leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you listen. Also, please check out our videos on YouTube and connect with us on LinkedIn. We're very big on LinkedIn. And you can also reach us on the logisticsoflogistics.com, our website.